No one wants to be forgotten. Some hope their grandchildren will keep their memory alive or that their acts of service will commemorate their time here on Earth. Still others have a Hollywood dream of being immortalized on camera, a legend come to life, never to be erased from the silver screen. But could a 30-foot-tall image of a mystery woman from a classic film actually solve a decades-old cold case? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. On a peaceful summer day, a 12-year-old girl walks with her dog in a remote area in the sand dunes along Cape Cod Bay. Suddenly, the dog catches a scent and runs toward a mass laying on the ground up ahead. The girl can't quite make it out. It's covered in crabs, slugs, and maggots, severely decomposed. As she gets closer, however, the horror becomes clear. It's the mutilated body of a young woman. This case begins just outside Provincetown, Massachusetts, the very tippity-tip of Cape Cod. On July 26, 1974, as police swarm the dunes where that mutilated corpse is found. The woman's killer, or killers, had attempted to remove her head, but the decapitation was only partially successful. Yikes. Her hands are severed and never found. Several teeth have been removed, presumably part of an effort to make her impossible to identify. Yet in a strange twist to what is a brazen mutilation, her jeans and a blue bandana have been carefully folded and placed beneath her head. Phelps, do you feel like having her clothes beneath her head like that meant that the person knew her or cared for her? That is Catherine Law, my producer. And this week, she comes right out of the gate with a piece of analysis we hear from various profiling types. That the way in which a crime scene speaks can tell us a lot about a killer. Often, if a perp shows any type of empathy for a victim, it could mean he knows her personally. And just a quick aside, there was another case in Massachusetts closer to Boston once where a toddler was found murdered on the beach. And there was a blanket, her blanket, like almost perfectly placed over her as if keeping her warm. In that case, it turned out to be the girl's mother. So whenever we have clothing or articles that the victim might own at a crime scene and they're arranged, that says something about the killer. And generally speaking, it's something personal. And there's something strange about someone who has murdered someone and they feel like they have to provide a sense of comfort, even though this is now a corpse. You murder somebody and then you want to treat them with some empathy. That's a strange thing. And it does say a lot about the psychology of that victim's killer. So back to this lady who was found in the dunes. There were signs of sexual trauma here, likely inflicted after she had died. 
necrophilia might lead us away from a perp who knew the victim. Alone, discarded, and unidentifiable, the media jumps all over this case and eventually dubs the mystery woman by the infamous name, the Lady of the Dunes. In truth, the intersection of empathy we feel for a victim of violence and the pull toward our curiosity about murder is the formula that keeps us coming back to true crime stories. Yet there is another layer of questioning I feel is key to this story, which has made the rounds in true crime circles. Someone, some family member, some friend had a loved one disappear forever. What's more frightening than a lunatic looking you in the eyes before dealing a death blow? Maybe disappearing and no one in your life realizing you're gone. We've had a few stories on Crossing the Line that have included this shocking element. You know, a person goes missing, but nobody reports that person missing. That's kind of sad, right? So here we have no police report, no missing persons investigation, just gone. As if you never existed to begin with. Immediately after the discovery of the body in this tiny town, just under 3,000 permanent residents, the media frenzy is everywhere. Provincetown investigators chase down leads to see if the murder might have been a mob hit, since mobsters are often known to manipulate bodies to make them harder to identify. Sex workers in the area are grilled as to whether they knew the victim. Every dentist in Massachusetts is questioned, and photos of the lady's crowns are even published in dental journals to see if anyone, just about anywhere, can identify her. Early leads piled up. One of the most promising involves a young woman named Rory Jean Kessinger, a 25-year-old runaway bank robber who had escaped from jail. The body found in the dunes matches her height, and she looks nearly identical to the sketches. However, the DNA sample of the victim does not match a sample taken from Kessinger's mother. Then we come to Cape Cod serial killer Haddon Clark, who even confessed to journalist and former Wellfleet police officer Alec Wilkinson that he committed this murder. Clark is a professed, quote, cross-dressing cannibal killer, end quote, convicted in Maryland for two murders in the 1990s, who claimed to have buried a few women in Wellfleet, Cape Cod, just a few towns south of Provincetown. His grandfather owned property in Wellfleet. He's confessed to burying bodies in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Pennsylvania as well. So Clark is a good guy to look at for this. It's clear almost immediately to law enforcement that Clark had simply read the details of the Lady of the Dunes murder in the newspaper. His admissions about the lady and several other murders, a mere list of false confessions. You know, serial killers love to do that shit. It almost fits perfectly that infamous chop-chop serial killer Tony Costa, known as the Cape Cod Vampire, who murdered four known women, dismembered them, and for good measure, cut their hearts out and buried them in his Truro Cape Cod garden and nearby wooded areas, that he would be a go-to for the lady, being that Costa committed many of his murders in 1969. Truro is the next closest town to Provincetown. But by 1970, Costa was in custody. So months and years go by with no leads. 
Coverage of the Lady of the Dunes case dwindles away over time as cops chase down dead ends. In fact, they hit nothing but dead ends for over three decades. The people of Provincetown provide the lady with a quiet burial place in a local cemetery, her donated headstone inscription reading, Unidentified Female Body Found at Race Point Dunes, July 26, 1974. I thought that was pretty nice. Yeah. These days, the police and a few cold case shows on TV aren't the only people interested in high-profile murders. There are legions of armchair investigators interested in reading about aging cases and, in fact, helping to solve them. And by some whim of the internet, about a decade and a half ago, interest in the Lady of the Dunes surged. In 2005, the first posts about Lady of the Dunes in a long period of time pop up on a popular sleuthing site. And I won't go into a rant here about cyber sleuths because I'm not a big fan. Sorry. But the one thing cyber sleuths do well is reignite interest in cold cases. So I will focus on that aspect. Leave my rage about cyber sleuthing for another time. Is it like because they sometimes can fuck up cases or whatever? I think it's because sometimes so many theories and misconceptions and misinformation gets tangled up with good information Mm. That that you have to sift through all this, and it just becomes a cluster F, basically, yeah. Yeah. if you're really, okay. truly looking at a cold case from an investigative standpoint. Got it. On this particular popular site, some speculate the murderer is a friend or family member of the lady. Again, okay, I'm, I'm going to keep my rage in check, but you know, <laughs> that's... That's not a big stretch, a friend or a family member of the lady. That's not a hard thing to come up with. Right. That could be anybody. Exactly. Others think it's gang-related. Bikers often passed, and there were a lot of drugs in Provincetown in the 70s. The site then focuses on several missing women who had an uncanny resemblance to the victim, trying to match females who disappeared with the Lady of the Dunes. Another job cyber sleuthing can be good for. I kind of wanted to mention, too, a lot of times it's called P-Town, and that's sort of how people know it. But it's sort of this very, like, happy-go-lucky place that was very gay-friendly, even from the 70s. So that, like, might be something interesting to talk about, or at least to mention. Other popular bloggers jump into it as well, including a guy by the name of Andy Towell, a one-time Provincetown resident who posts an early sketch of the victim on his blog peaking widespread fascination among readers. This reemergence of interest in the Lady of the Dunes then leads Jeff Jaron, a former Provincetown police chief, to convince the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to reinvestigate the case in 2010. So there is some good that came from the cyber sleuthing. I don't want to diss all cyber sleuthing here. I feel like any time pressure is applied, it gets, you know, it's the squeaky wheel gets the oil, whether it's the family who keeps after the police department to find answers or cyber sleuths reigniting a case decades later. It's kind of interesting. I'll say this about cold cases, and maybe people know this or maybe they don't, but you have to think about it this way. Unless there's a cold case squad, cold cases just sit cold. Hmm. Nobody touches them. Mm-hmm. Unless there's a lull in murder or opioid crimes or thefts and 
detectives have time. Mm-hmm. And it's no fault of the detectives. It's just budget cuts. It's personnel cuts. And it's new crimes. Yeah. So unless yeah. there's a cold case squad dedicated to cold cases, cold cases remain cold. So your point is well taken. You get somebody to put a lot of pressure on it, and all of a sudden, maybe a detective goes in on a Saturday, takes a look, and all of a sudden, bang, he sees something that he didn't see before, yeah. or she. Mm-hmm. So work starts up again in this case. It's not cold anymore. Mm-hmm. A CAT scan is taken of the victim's skull, and anthropologists work to create a computer rendering of what the woman would have looked like at the time of her death, which you can easily Google and see online. Okay. This technological breakthrough leads to some bizarre twists in this case. I'll tell you that. One of these twists includes a Hollywood connection linking the case to one of the most respected directors alive and one of the most famous movies of all time, as well as one of the greatest horror writers the past 50 years. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be right back. After the release of the Lady of the Dunes computer rendering, another important element helps to generate interest in this 30-year-old cold case. A 2014 book titled The Skeleton Crew, How Amateur Sleuths Are Solving America's Coldest Cases, by Deborah Halber. This is a respected book by a respected journalist published by Simon & Schuster. Deborah has been a freelance journalist since 2004, her work appearing in the Boston Globe, MIT Technology Review, and many university publications. She's a member of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, and the National Association of Science Writers. So she's got some like badges on her on her website. She does. She's the person to start looking into this stuff. Yeah. Deborah dug deep into the Lady of the Dunes story in her book, unpacking all the ways the internet has revived the case and maybe even provided investigators with new leads. The body of the Lady of the Dunes is ultimately exhumed in 1980, 2000, and again, secretly in 2013. Deborah writes that after receiving a tip that the secret exhumation is about to take place, guess what? She shows up at the cemetery. I love that. I'd have done the same thing. (laughs) Immediately after leaving the site, Deborah receives a call from Detective Meredith Labor, voice of the Provincetown Police on all things Lady of the Dunes. Labor had largely ignored Deborah's calls and emails until this point, but recognized her at the exhumation site. She warns her not to write about what she saw, as it could, quote, compromise the investigation, end quote. Look, I got a problem with this. Tell me. Compromise the investigation? Are you? (laughs) It's been sitting there for 30 years at this point. Are you kidding me? A woman showing up at an exhumation site watching can compromise the investigation if she writes about what she saw? That's bullshit. I call bullshit on that. Guess what she saw? She saw a body getting taken out of the ground. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Deborah believes all this concern has to do with a picture shown on the news a few months earlier. A woman who looks like the victim standing next to notorious South Boston mobster Whitey Bulger, who had last been seen in Provincetown in the 70s. 
This plays right into the theory that the mob is responsible for the Lady of the Dunes murder. But was it true? Or just more convoluted, internet-based, armchair sleuthing, mucking up a cold case? So I get that it looked like a mob hit because of, you know, some of the specific types of mutilations to the body. But some of the things that take me out of that theory are like the post-death sexual assault, the laying her head on the clothes. What do you think, Phelps? Well, look, the mob, they don't almost cut your head off. They cut your head off. Exactly. Exactly. If they're going to try and do this, they're not going to like stop in the middle. They're professionals. They're professionals. Right. And I I don't know too many hitmen who are necrophiliacs. Right. It's just not something they do. In fact, if the mob finds out that you're having sex with the corpses that you kill, you're out. Here's the thing, too. I feel like there is a certain weird, almost respect. You don't really hear of the mob or mob guys like raping someone before they're murdered. They don't. You know, it's just, it's not there. The Iceman killed people and he was good at it. Mm-hmm. That's what he does. Hitmen are professional killers. They kill, they get out of there. Mm-hmm. If they were told, make sure you can't identify her, she would not have had anything on her identifiable. Right. They would have completely removed her head. And if Whitey Bulger was involved? You think you want to screw me. up on a murder that he asked trust for? Me. No. Yeah. No, no. So according to what she writes in her book, Deborah refuses to give up her investigation. Good for her. She meets with Bobby Lingos, a retiree and web sleuth, and goes through possible matches. They look at the victim's dental details, expensive work that costs tens of thousands of dollars today. They tediously eliminate names together, whittling down their list of possibilities to answer the question, who is the infamous Lady of the Dunes? When Deborah brings up the possible tie to Whitey Bulger, web sleuther Bobby becomes nervous. Although the notorious mob boss has been captured by then, he believes one of Bulger's cohorts might come after anyone investigating his ties to the lady, himself and Deborah included. But do they really need to worry? Deborah contacts Thomas J. Foley, a retired Massachusetts state police colonel who had investigated and helped convict a half dozen of Boston's most notorious thugs in the course of his decades-long career. Author of Most Wanted, Pursuing Whitey Bulger, the murderous mob chief the FBI secretly protected, Foley's investigations ultimately led to Bulger fleeing Boston prior to his arrest. When asked if Bobby's concerns are legitimate, Foley responds, quote, I would be hesitant to tell anyone they have nothing to worry about, end quote. Yes. So that's kind of serious. It's kind of serious, but uh, that's like uh, asking an attorney a question. You know, they're going to cover themselves, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's when the story completely pivots, taking its next strange conspiracy-like turn directly toward Hollywood. Hmm. Of course it does. (laughs) Why wouldn't it? I mean, at this point, you've got cyber sleuths going crazy with this thing. You've got a journalist at Exhumations. You've got former mob investigators. I mean, of course it's going to end up in Hollywood. Why wouldn't it? So Joe Hill, a 
successful author of horror books and son of master horror writer superstar Stephen King becomes fascinated with the lady after reading Deborah Halber's book, The Skeleton Crew. He researches the case extensively online, another cyber sleuth there, acquainting himself with the latest details and studying the recreation of the lady's face. Purely by happenstance, or maybe because he is an East Coaster with a penchant for horror and a suspense horror author himself, Joe also has an obsession with the 1974 summer blockbuster film, Jaws. The Spielberg classic is one of his favorite movies of all time, and he has watched it every year since being a kid. Only two at the time the movie was released, Joe Hill had never had the opportunity to see it on the big screen until the summer of 2015. In June of that year, Jaws is unleashed in theaters <laughs> again to celebrate its 40th anniversary. Naturally, Joe is first in line and right there. And so, he soon believes, is she the Lady of the Dunes. As Joe watches the film, Looking over her shoulder in a busy crowd scene, an extra in the film, there she is, the lady. And then, suddenly, she's gone, out of the shot. Are you following me here? Stick with me. Chills trickled down Joe's spine as he processes that he had just seen the Lady of the Dunes, life-size, as an extra in his favorite movie. It's got to be her. I'm feeling a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy going on here. You know what? I'm with you there. I am definitely with you on that. That That is, <laughs> it sounds about right. But look, Mr. Joe Hill, or Joe King rather, is certain. He's found the Lady of the Dunes. And I just want everyone to picture this for a minute. I've seen this scene numerous times. You know, and it's a crowd of people, but bang, this lady really pops out of the scene. And remember... We're talking about specific pieces of clothing she's wearing. So that's kind of what tipped Joe off. But let's take a break right here and we'll be back with the conclusion of the case that proves fact is a hell of a lot stranger than fiction. When we left off, horror suspense author Stephen King's son, I bet he hates being called that. I bet it. I, I Poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. That's why he changed his name. That's right. Helps you're outing him. <laughs> uh, I remember sitting next to Joe Hill once at a book signing event, Book Expo America. I had the luck of being stationed with my true crime book next to Joe Hill. And there's like a line to the end of the conference hall for Joe Hill. And there's like maybe 30 people in my line. And it, I just felt so inadequate sitting next to Joe Hill. 30's nothing to sneeze at, though. I will also say, Phelps, this was something interesting. I was looking on Amazon for some of your books because we mentioned one in a recent episode. And I was like, oh, wait, all of your books have four and a half stars. All of your books are way up there. Well, thank you. Thank, thank, yeah. thank you very much. I think at one point on this show, I want to read some bad reviews in my books. <laughs> I think it's Jimmy Kimmel. They do Twitter. He has stars read yes. Twitter. Not that I'm a star, but that I, would be hysterical. I'd like to read like a really bad review of my book. <laughs> Good. So Joe Hill has spotted the Lady of the Dunes. How about that? As an extra in the blockbuster film Jaws, you know, as one does. You go to the movies and bang, an unidentified woman from a cold case murder right there on the screen. 
If you're Joe Hill, you have to think, is this just my imagination because I've been following this case so intensely? And exactly. am I just so obsessed that I think I'm seeing her or is this real? Yeah, it's, it is a fascinating part of this story. And I like talking about it, actually, because it's, you know, it, it fires everybody up again to focus on the Lady of the Dunes. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else... You've got a high-profile guy now calling this out, so some focus is put on this case, which can only be good. I have seen people get too close to cases where they can no longer help, and everything they latch onto or uncover becomes important, and it's like a new theory, right? Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Joe is spooked at this point, but he's a smart guy, and that's exactly what he assumes. His mind is playing tricks on him. Perhaps he is just exaggerating the resemblance, but... The extra in the film has the same auburn hair, the same facial features, appears the right weight, age and build, and is even wearing that same blue bandana, just like the one that had been placed beneath the nearly severed head of the Lady of the Dunes. I mean, what do you think? Because that all could just be coincidence. Yeah, I think it could be coincidence because there's nothing really there that gives her away. The same facial features, the right weight, age and build and wearing the same blue bandana that like everybody had in the 70s <laughs> you know it's true but as a woman like when i am rocking a look i will like rock it every day for like a minute you know for several days <laughs> for several weeks whatever i'm like oh this is my new this is my new luke i i mean but what i'm saying is everybody looked like that in the 70s no completely completely i mean even in the 80s i had that same bandana but it was sticking out of my back pocket you know. Ah, uh, yeah. What's that mean? Is that like secret East Coast code for something? Yeah, it means don't fuck with me. All right. <laughs> don't don't just don't fuck with me. I'm I'm good, but just don't play with me. All right. I will not, I promise. So Joe Hill rushes home. After rewatching the scene over and over and researching further, it seems more and more plausible that she really could be the lady of the dunes. In fact, the timelines add up perfectly. You see, Jaws was filmed on Martha's Vineyard in the summer of 1974. And the vineyard is a short ferry ride from Provincetown. We know that the Lady of the Dunes is still alive in June. The exact date the scene was filmed is unconfirmed. But it is very likely that June. That's because the on-island scenes were shot early as the water was too cold for swimming and the notoriously malfunctioning shark wasn't ready to shoot until late July. Yeah, they say that the reason Jaws is so scary is because you don't even really see the shark until well into the movie, like two-thirds of the way through the movie. But that was necessitated because they couldn't get the shark to work in the water. Who knows? It could have been a cheesy shark movie if it worked in the beginning. Uh-huh. Right? Although I do love a cheesy shark movie. The Meg, anyone? Sharknado? That cheesy? <laughs> yeah. I think that's Brie. I think we'd call that Brie. I'm into yeah. it. <laughs> you know, now we're getting somewhere, though, I should say, because Martha's Vineyard is a very short ferry ride from the tip of Cape Cod. And with Jaws being filmed right there, you know, we're getting somewhere now. Now I'm getting sold. It's all right in the same area. I Googled it. You obviously know more about it, but I Googled it and I was like, oh no, that's a that's not far on the old Google Maps. I've done the ferry ride. I've been in P-Town. So the timeline is starting to work, and so does the location. The film was a huge deal locally, and a lot of people showed up hoping to catch a peak of filming or 
sign up to be an extra. Because Martha's Vineyard is only a short ferry ride from Provincetown, it's not at all far-fetched to consider that a girl summering in the area would go check out the movie shoot and raise her hand to appear in a movie scene as an extra. Now this is becoming plausible for me, okay? We're not talking bandanas and the same weight and the same height anymore. We're talking, hmm, interesting. There have been attempts to track down a record of the extras involved in the shoot, but this was before digital records. And Sherry Rhodes, the casting director for Jaws, died in 2009. The paperwork has been lost to time. Joe Hill hopes that recent articles released on the subject may shed some light on the truth. At the very least, he hopes bringing attention to the case might lead to more clues or encourage someone with information to start talking. And it's very likely they might. Quote, a woman died and she's never been identified, Joe Hill says. She's someone's daughter. You have to hope sooner or later there will be a resolution. But I keep wondering, how come that woman in Jaws, if she's not the lady in the dunes, why hasn't she or someone that knows her come forward to say, this is me? End quote. Those are solid points, Joe Hill. I'm with you there, dude. I kind of agree with that because... Somebody would know her. I think the story of Joe Hill recognizing the Lady of the Dunes in the movie needed bigger coverage. Mm-hmm. And I think if it can be put out in documentaries and, you know, TV shows, et cetera, on The Unexplained or whatever, you know, I think it would help even more, you know? Yeah. But as strange as it may be, that's not her only connection to the classic film. Whether or not the Lady of the Dunes truly appeared in the film Jaws, she did influence the final outcome of the movie. Hmm. Late in filming, Spielberg added a scene to the film where a dead body is found, and it's been speculated that he was inspired to do so after reading about the case in local papers as he spent his summer filming the horror masterpiece. That is fantastic. Fascinating. Like, of course, you know, you see those pictures of him filming that with his, like, shirt off and his short shorts, having his coffee and a cigarette, and he's reading the paper. That's where he would have seen this. It would have been huge news. I can see that scene in the movie in my head right now. I've uh-huh. seen this classic so many times. Yeah. I am a fan, I should say, of the one where Jaws gets a hold of the helicopter. Uh, I, I, th- I think that's <laughs> Jaws 4 or 5, Michael Caine. <laughs> Excellent. Because that reminds me of the original Batman movie, you know, uh-huh. with Adam West and Burt Ward when they're climbing up a ladder to the Batcopter in the ocean and a shark jumps out of the water and grabs Batman's foot and, and he's kind of hanging on, hanging on. You know what, Phelps? Our next episode is going to be a Batman-related story. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm all for that. Nowadays, there are cameras on every freaking single street corner, camera phones, in everybody's hands, and we leave a digital footprint marking our every move. Blech. Everybody knows this. But in 1974 on Cape Cod, cameras were scarce, except for the one being operated by Steven Spielberg. When a big Hollywood movie takes over a town for a few months, how does that affect the people who live there or are passing through? Does crime go up? Does the heightened tension on a movie set disrupt the town itself with people angling for access to movie stars and the self-importance of movie making? Are the local cops dropping their guard and suddenly paying less mind to a potential psychopath in their midst? 
We may never know the answers to these questions, but we may be closer to identifying the Lady of the Dunes. In 2019, investigators announced that they are now re-examining the case using new techniques of combined DNA analysis and genealogical family tree building sites. This method was famously used to identify the Golden State Killer, as well as a host of other killers, some of which we've talked about on Crossing the Line. Quote, we're going to examine everything that we can with respect to what's left of the remains, said Cape and Islands District Attorney Michael O'Keefe. New technology may get us answers very soon, or someone who knows something may come forward. I mean, that's what my hope is in doing this episode, now that Whitey Bulger has died. But for now, the details of the life and horrific, tragic death of the Lady of the Dunes remain one of those enduring American true crime mysteries that keep people listening and watching, talking, and cyber-saluting. Within all of that, one thing's for sure, which is very important to me. The Lady of the Dunes has not been forgotten. And I just want to thank Rose Bocci, my producer, for writing the script. Until next week, be safe, be aware, and watch out for those sharks in the water. Sources for today's episode come from... The Skeleton Crew, How Amateur Sleuths Are Solving America's Coldest Cases by Deborah Halber, Simon & Schuster, 2014. The Tragic Unsolved Case of the Lady of the Dunes, All That's Interesting, Natasha Ishak. The True Story Behind Wild Theory That Jaws Could Identify Woman Found Almost Beheaded Near the Beach, Christine Pelisek, People Magazine. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP, Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.